You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Elisa, who is a national security lawyer here in her individual capacity, and not on behalf of any agency or company. Thanks for tuning in to NSLT. Before we start, remember that this November 7th and 8th is the 29th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference in D.C. This is a can't-miss live event with CLE credit, so go to AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity to learn more and register. While you're online, check out the book Whistleblowers, Leaks, and the Media, The First Amendment and National Security, an outstanding book on leaks and secret information in the modern age that you can grab from our, our site for just $20. Our guest this week on the podcast is a lawyer in Washington, D.C. and a whistleblower specialist, Brad Moss. We were able to quickly catch him on the phone for an update on this very timely topic, which you will hear during this episode. All right. Well, as you may have guessed from the lead-in, we're here tonight to talk about the law governing whistleblowers, uh, particularly those in the intelligence community. And our guest is Brad Moss, an attorney in Washington, D.C., who specializes in whistleblower matters. Hey, Brad, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Happy to do so. All right, let's uh, let's talk about where we are. We're recording this tonight on October 1st, and there have been so many facts that develop. Let's talk about what is known as of this recording. Sure. So what we know so far is that an individual inside the intelligence community uh, the identity, their uh, particular affiliation, whether civil servant or contractor, none of this is known. But we know that in August, this individual filed a complaint under the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act, and they submitted it to the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, which is the proper step. We know that the Inspector General, within his 14-day statutory time frame, reviewed the complaint conducted an initial inquiry, found the allegations credible in meeting the definition of an urgent concern, and that's when the complaint was sent to the DNI, who, under the statute, was supposed to forward it to the House Intelligence Committee. However, what we now also know is that because the complaint was made against the president himself in terms of the uh, type of phone calls he was having with Ukrainian officials trying to leverage uh, official acts in, in exchange for personal favors by way of a possible investigation by the Ukrainians into Joe Biden, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, uh, as well as conversations uh, with respect to Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer, trying to push this type of investigation in his interactions with the Ukrainians, as well as efforts by White House and National Security Council staff to hide the president's uh, transcripts in a code word classified system for which the transcripts themselves were not uh, otherwise suited to be in, all were viewed as sufficient to meet the IG's standard, but the DNI was concerned that it raised constitutional questions that took this outside the scope of the ICWPA. The DNI sought guidance from the DOJ. DOJ said it did not require referral. Congress learned of that, there was a public subpoena issued, and ultimately the complaint itself was transmitted to Congress, sorry, to the Intelligence Committee and made public for the American people. 
Okay, so let's go back. You said that this was a call where the president uh, was asking for what you called a private favor, and you have some basis to say that because um, in addition to the president suggesting that the new Ukrainian president interact with Attorney General William Barr, um, he actually suggested that uh, the Ukrainian president deal directly with the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, which really sort of changed the nature of the call. Um, and we are in an election campaign. Um, obviously, Joe Biden, former Vice President Biden, is running for president. Uh, and so this, given the circumstances that we're in right now, does look like it could be a favor sort of geared at bringing something to the public uh, about Joe Biden that may be helpful uh, to the president in terms of winning re-election. But you raise another thing, which is um, the issue of the uh, – urgent concern, let's just say for our listeners who are, are law people, that what you're referring to is the text of the whistleblower, the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Act of 1998, um, which was recently amended to extend not just to personnel within the um, intelligence community elements, but also to contractors who might work there. And you raise the issue of an urgent concern, which has a certain legal definition. Um, do you, do you, have you memorized that to the point where you can recite it for our listeners? <laughs> uh, well, don't, you know, don't uh, grade me too harshly on it, but more or less the concept of an urgent concern is a serious or flagrant abuse of the law or executive order with respect to the operation of an intelligence activity. And the statutory definition very specifically and explicitly excludes what it defines, what it, what it describes as mere differences of opinion over public policy disputes. So to give an example, um, if the whistleblower complaint had been about the president, any president in the United States discussing with a foreign leader the idea of reducing sanctions or engaging in nuclear diplomacy, those are essential uh, issues of public policy that the mere view that a, by an intelligence community official that this is something the president should not do would not qualify under the statutory definition. Okay, so I looked at this statute and um, I also looked at the recently released Congressional Research Service report, which we'll hyperlink for our listeners. What I find interesting is it talks about the DNI and this being sort of agencies under the DNI's control. Um, but it doesn't define intelligence activities, and that appears to be where uh, possibly DOJ, we don't know, but possibly DOJ's Office of Legal Counsel, OLC, said maybe this doesn't meet the definition of intelligence activities. Now, presumably activities, intelligence activities, would be those activities occurring within the, the statutory authority given to those intelligence agencies that are listed in things like the National Security Act of 1947 is amended by various other things. Um, do you agree with that, Brad? Is that about right? Yeah, so, I mean, they left it rather vague, and I don't know if they ever anticipated a scenario in which this type of very, uh, you know, 30,000-foot level, inherent constitutional, you know, right to conduct foreign diplomacy was really something that would ever be an issue. I don't think they ever anticipated a president who would engage in behavior along these lines. Whatever you might think of Donald Trump, whatever you might think of the way he communicates, this was something that brought about slightly closer to the line of, you know, inching towards what you could arguably implicate bribery statutes 
that I think people would never have anticipated a president would have communicated in quite this way. And so, yeah, the problem with that, with the, that definition, with the intelligence activities being so uh, vague and undefined, is it leaves it a bit open to interpretation. Now, obviously, the Justice Department has taken a different view compared to the Inspector General on whether or not this could not only, obviously, fall within the DNI supervision, and the president does not fall within the DNI supervision, the president is the DNI's boss, but also the question of whether or not efforts to engage in quote-unquote bribery or a campaign finance violation, something along those lines, could implicate an intelligence activity. There's some room for, you know, discussion and interpretation there. The IG viewed it as qualifying because it implicated the DNI's ultimate responsibility to protect the nation's uh, election security and uh, the uh, ability for the federal government to administer elections in a very broader context. There's a, there's legitimacy to questioning if that truly could have met the standard. And the DOJ does, to be fair, identify the notion that this may not have implicated the ICWPA referral provision, but could still have implicated a criminal restriction, which is why they referred it to DO, which is why they referred it for possible criminal uh, investigation and prosecution. Sure. And I guess this gets to uh, another issue, which is what is an intelligence activities if you are working with a new leader and asking a favor of that person, they have, that country has incredible strategic significance to the United States, Ukraine uh, existing geographically where it does in close proximity to Russia um, and other nations, I guess, of a strategic concern. You know, it does seem at some point that you move from just Article 2 authorities of the president as the chief organ of foreign affairs and you begin to inch into intelligence activities. Um, obviously not at this point, but um, okay, so that's interesting. So there is obviously the referral could have been made because um, this could have implicated bribery, perhaps the emoluments clause that forbids taking a favor um, from a foreign government. And I guess arguably this could be a favor um, uh, of some kind. Um, I think the flip side of that I can imagine will be well, you know, he was calling upon them to investigate potential wrongdoing or criminal behavior. Um, the only thing that I think undermines that, obviously, is the use of, of Mr. Giuliani in this circumstance would, would tend to suggest that that's not really a, a credible uh, argument at this point based on what facts are public. Correct, correct. And there also raises the question of if, in fact, there is something to the president's concerns that there was illegal behavior by Hunter Biden or by Joe Biden in terms of his uh, actions to get the former prosecutor fired. It begs the question of if there is something there, there, why do you need the Ukrainians to be looking into it? And why do you need to have your personal lawyer involved? Why isn't this something for the FBI to do? And if it's so obvious, why aren't the trained, experienced, you know, non-political civil servants viewing it the same way? Why is this only something you view as necessary? And why are you pressuring a foreign government to do essentially a personal favor for you to investigate something no one else thinks warrants investigation? Wow, those are interesting. So I guess this raises, though, another issue, which I find a little bit troubling. Um, this individual who came forward legitimately believing that they were whistleblowing, obviously it had to be investigated, was investigated, they were found credible. It would appear right now that there's a certain 
there's been some public statements by the president to try to identify that person. And, and I'm sure on a personal level, you know, he feels upset, but he said some, you know, pretty strong things about exposing this individual. Um, what, if anything, is in the whistleblower protection statute that might cover an individual under these circumstances, or is there nothing? So the problem with the existing protections, and bear in mind that the Intelligence Community Whistleblower Protection Act did not actually provide any protection. It's a misleading title. It simply provided a mechanism, a secure mechanism by which uh, individuals in the IC could provide uh, complaints of a classified nature to the intelligence committees without violating criminal restrictions. Um, the protections that exist for having made protected disclosures didn't come into existence until 2012 when President Barack Obama issued what is called Presidential Policy Directive 19. This was later codified into law by Congress in 2014, and what it did was simply provide administrative procedures for someone to uh, file a complaint within the intelligence community still, no judicial review, but to file a complaint outlining how the person was retaliated against for having made a lawful protected disclosure to the Inspector General and or the Intelligence Committees. The reprisal could come in the form of disciplinary action or revocation of their security clearance. This provided a, at least some modicum of protection of a, you know, a means to secure a remedy, but the PPD-19 and the codification into law by Congress never considered the idea of applying it to the President, one, because there'd be inherent constitutional tensions trying to do so, but two, they never envisioned the scenario in which a president might personally get involved and try to be the one retaliating against the individual. So if this individual's, the whistleblower, if their identity is exposed and Donald Trump very next moment issues an, an order demanding the termination of that person's employment and a revocation of that person's security clearance, the existing protections in law don't likely provide anything, any kind of shield against that, and there's arguably nothing as a legal matter to stop Donald Trump from taking that action. There's only political remedies, namely impeachment. Wow. Um, uh, you know, we. You, I guess the whole point of having whistleblower statutes, though, is to encourage that people do report um, fraud, abuse, waste, wrong, wrongdoing. Um, you know, the American public, the American taxpayer, obviously don't want to be paying for things that are, frankly, wrong. Um, so that is concerning that nobody thought and gamed it out and thought about secondary and tertiary concerns to these individuals. I would point out, though, that this law passed in 1998 originally, and one of our listeners sort of buttonholed me today and said, hey, you know what, just remember that some of the people now uh, who are asking that this individual be identified or who are standing silent while the president does this um, – you know, they're the same ones who were very upset when Linda Tripp was exposed and, um, you know, sort of taken to pieces by the, the, the public and the press to the point where she became virtually unemployable. And I hadn't thought about that, but there are some people who are still in Congress um, who were around at that time and were crying foul. So it'll be interesting to see if we can all just come together on this. Um, let me ask you a, a couple of a couple of other questions here. Where do you see any of this going? What are your predictions for where this is going to go over the next week? So the preference in my uh, you know, fantasy vision of how this would go forward is that 
the focus, the attention stays on the substance of what was disclosed to the IG and that was ultimately disclosed to the Intelligence Committee and resolving as a political matter the extent to which the president's calls, the actions by the staff to hide the transcripts in that code word system to address whether or not that warrants impeachment and pursue the constitutional process that is required if so. My hope is in that fantasy world that the whistleblower is left alone because in the end, the whistleblower is not the story. He or she did their job. They went to con, they went to, sorry, they went to the inspector general lawfully as defined by statute and provided the, with the concern as allowed for by that statute. They have done nothing else. They have not gone public. They have not gone on Anderson Cooper. They have not gone on Hardball and MSNBC. They have not made any public statement. Their identity is at risk, though, because of all these different media outlets, both on the left and the right, trying to figure out who this person is as if it matters, as if their background matters, as if their political biases matter. They don't. If, there, if the whistleblower was the one who had made, who, if they could have made this happen on their own, yes, I can grasp how that'd be relevant. But the whistleblower had no reason to believe that a inspector general appointed by this president would have just accepted on face value a clearly partisan, you know, hatchet job. And this whistleblower had every reason to believe that the allegations implicating the president would be scrutinized very strictly and very seriously. The person did their job, the IG did his job, the DNI did his job. Now let the political process play out and let the whistleblower go back to his or her job without being molested further. And let me ask you, Brad, though, doesn't this suggest to Congress um, that maybe they need to think about amending that statute to put in some processes for protecting that whistleblower and perhaps some consequences for their public exposure? So there are existing remedies that exist if it was someone beneath the president. You know, there is the inspector general statute that prohibits the CID outing of the name of the whistleblower, but that would apply to the IG's staff. There are criminal restrictions that apply in things like the Intelligence Identities Protection Act if the individual's affiliation uh, is itself a classified fact, and if they, you know, are undercover in a certain, you know, covert capacity for a certain number of years. There are various remedies that exist in different circumstances in a normal environment where the person trying to out the whistleblower is someone who's more of a mid-level or even senior level government official. It is difficult to fashion a remedy when the individual trying, who's seeking to out the whistleblower is the president, and any attempt by Congress to try to apply uh, future legislative amendments to a future president would face not only the likelihood of a certain veto, but even if it somehow overrode a veto, there'd be certain, there'd be significant constitutional tension in any type of legal action against the president, given any president's inherent Article II authority. And so I think that's why no statute has tried to do that in this context. And I don't, you know, no matter what happens here, I don't anticipate that future legislation will be able to successfully do that going forward. All right. Well, uh, Brad, this is interesting. I think what we should do at this point, obviously, is watch how things unfold. It'll be interesting to see if Congress has an appetite to take any of this 
on and amend the statute to provide greater protections um, or if we'll continue to live in what has been more or less a perpetual discord in this country for at this point you know, since before the 2016 election. But I want to thank you for coming in tonight. We're really glad that you joined us. Um, and I did have a parting thought for you and our listeners, which is it's always interesting when you hear any uh, leader invoke, um, you know, uh, re- make a request for assistance from a foreign government. It uh, it always makes me think back to uh, there's a federal Federalist paper number four written by John Jay that warned against this sort of uh, behavior. And specifically, it said it, we it, we are to seek, you know, if we are to allow uh, foreign influence, we'll end up split into three or four independent and probably discordant republics or confederacies. Um, and how uh, we would draw the contempt of the world ultimately. Uh, but John John Jay also wrote uh, that when a people or family so divide, it never fails to be against themselves. Um, so I hope that this will uh, soon be something that the president ignores and the facts are focused on and people will make their own independent decisions. I'm really glad that you came in tonight. It was great to have you, and I hope we'll see you soon, and you'll come back to join us at a later time as this case unfolds. Would I'd be happy to do so, absolutely, anytime. Thank you for tuning in today. You can find links to the Black Letter Law and the articles that we've referenced on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. You can also find information about the annual review conference this 7th and 8th and the whistleblower book that we referenced at the top of the show there. Drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABANatSec and remember to subscribe to NSLT on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.